Um, so thank you to all of you for coming, and thanks to Alex for inviting me. I'm very much looking forward to your to your feedback on on this talk. So, um, so I'll begin. When governments, international organizations, and NGOs provide non-military international aid, the two main categories through which that aid is conceptualized, funded, and implemented are development aid and emergency aid. Over the past 35 years, there has been a significant shift in emphasis from development aid to emergency aid. As you can see, in 1970, emergency aid accounted for just 1% of overall official development assistance. In 2003, emergency aid accounted for 11% of official development assistance. That's a tenfold increase. These statistics have prompted several commentators to ask whether this shift toward emergency aid is morally justifiable, especially because increased expenditure on emergency aid is often at the expense of development. In response to these concerns, one might argue that the shift toward emergency aid is morally justifiable or one might argue that it is not. The first claim that I want to defend you today is that this is entirely the wrong way of thinking about the distribution of international aid. It's counterproductive. We should not be asking whether emergency aid should be prioritized over development aid or vice versa. While the categories of emergency and development are arguably useful for implementing aid programs, they undermine principled distribution of aid resources. These categories should be retained only insofar as they are necessary for effective aid implementation. They should, play, they should play as minor a role as possible in aid distribution, or so I shall argue. To defend this claim, I identify three distributive principles that are likely to be endorsed, to some degree or another, by agents with a wide range of normative commitments and perspectives. I then show that distributing aid on the basis of, of one or more of these principles entails cutting across the emergency development distinction, as opposed to systematically prioritizing one category over the other. That is, as opposed to systematically prioritizing emergency aid or development aid. While the distinction between emergency and normal times crops up frequently in political theory, for example, in debates about the use of emergency powers during wartime, Theorists of international aid have said remarkably little about the categories of emergency and development, and even less about distributive trade-offs between them. Given my argument so far, this might not seem like a problem. If my claim is that the emergency development distinction should play no role, should have no role in how aid resources are distributed, and if theorists simply fail to notice this distinction in the first place, then maybe they have things right in spite of themselves. This is not the case, however. The reason is that at first glance, the categories of emergency and development do seem to track familiar distributive principles. In particular, it looks at first as if complying with the principle of prioritizing the worst off would entail prioritizing emergency aid, and complying with the principle of maximizing aggregate utility would entail prioritizing development aid. So even though theorists have not looked closely at the relationship between various distributive principles on the one hand, and the categories of emergency and development on the other hand, I think that if they were to do so, the first and most obvious conclusions that they would come to would be wrong. And it is those wrong conclusions that I shall first articulate and then argue against. Before introducing my second main argument, I want to come at my first argument again with an analogy. And be forewarned, this analogy does not go very far, but it does help to get the main conceptual point across. So say that you want to buy a new car and you're trying to decide which car to buy. You're thinking a Ford, a Honda, maybe a Subaru. 
as should be apparent, this is entirely the wrong way to go about buying a car. Let us assume that on reflection, what you really care about in your new car is gas mileage, safety, and price. The reason why you should not think in terms of Fords and Hondas is that all Hondas would not do better on these criteria than all Fords, and certainly not vice versa. Therefore, beginning your car buying process by choosing between Fords and Hondas would not be conducive to maximally fulfilling your criteria. So my argument is that thinking about resource distribution in terms of emergency and development is analogous to thinking in terms of Fords and Hondas. Just as thinking in terms of Fords and Hondas distracts one from relevant criteria, such as safety or gas mileage, thinking in terms of emergency and development distracts us from more principled basis for aid distribution, such as prioritizing the worst off or maximizing aggregate utility. So because of how the, car, the practice of car buying in the United States happens to be organized, you will eventually have to go to either a Ford dealership or a Honda dealership. But this should have no bearing on the criteria that you use to decide which car to buy. Analogously, because of how the practice of international aid happens to be organized globally, donations and activities must usually be characterized or be categorized as either emergency or development, but this should have no bearing on the principles that are used to distribute international aid. So I, I will dare to use the car analogy to make one more point. The fact that Hondas tend to have better gas mileage than Fords might tempt you to use Honda as a heuristic for good gas mileage. And that's all right, as long as one remembers that it is a heuristic and an imperfect one. Analogously, because emergency aid tends to go to people with more severe needs, need than does development aid, it is tempting to use emergency aid as a heuristic for prioritizing the worst off. But there's two problems with this. One is that it's a less good heuristic than one might initially think, and more fundamentally, there's a tendency to forget that it's a heuristic at all and to think only in terms of emergency and development aid. So the upshot of the first argument that I've just described to you is a claim about what would be best. It would be best if the emergency development distinction had no effect on how international aid is distributed. While conceptual, conceptual clarity is important for its own sake, acting on this suggestion is probably infeasible, at least in the short term. So my second and much shorter argument, therefore, turns from pursuing what I think would be best to trying to avoid that which is worst, specifically the worst distortions that the categories of emergency and development impose on our thinking about aid distribution. I will argue that what is most likely to lead us astray are what I will call emergencies event-like features. What is tricky about these features is that unlike sources of bias that are obviously wrong, such as racism, it's not immediately apparent that event-like features are morally irrelevant. By identifying these features and noticing how they function, we can reduce their potentially distorting effects on aid distributions. And for reasons of time, I'm going to say less about that second argument than I do about the first, but hopefully I'll be able to say enough for it to be interesting and for you to ask questions about it if you want to. The problem in the world that these two arguments address is the confusion that the categories of emergency and development impose on our thinking about the distribution of international aid. It is not the distribution of resources represented on the graph that I just showed you that's the problem, but rather how the graph represents that distribution. And if you want to talk about how it is actually distributed during the question and answer period, we can do that too. So before turning to my two main arguments, we need a definition of emergency, and we need some background information on how the emergency development distinction function in practice. I will then present my two main arguments and conclude by gesturing toward their broader implications. So first, defining emergency. 
Let's define an emergency in a thin, minimalist way as a situation characterized by urgent and severe need. Needs that are urgent and severe must be met soon in order to avoid serious harm. This definition is objective insofar as it provides a basis for judging whether a particular situation is an emergency that is largely independent of whether the situation is treated as an emergency by others. So putting aside measurement problems, we can say that situation X is an emergency, even though Smith claims that it is not, and situation Y is not an emergency, even though Smith claims that it is. In contrast, the Oxford English Dictionary defines an emergency as a state of things unexpectedly arising and urgently demanding immediate action. The difference between these two definitions captures attention at the heart of the concept of emergency. On the one hand, to call a situation an emergency is to describe its more or less objective characteristics, as my definition implies. On the other hand, to call a situation an emergency is also to make a normative claim that something must be done, as the OED's definition implies. And I'm going to return to both of these distinctions later. I now want to say a bit about how the distinction between emergency and development aid functions in practice. For those of you, those of you who know about this distinction will find what I'm about to say uh, simplistic, and those of you who aren't familiar will not get enough information, but that is, that is the way it, it will go. Um, so for the past few decades, there's been an aid system with a bifurcated architecture and conceptual, managerial, and organizational divisions between emergency aid, which is also known as relief or humanitarian aid, and development aid. The main purpose of emergency aid is to protect life and preserve dignity. It involves the provision of goods and services such as food, water, sanitation, medical care, and shelter during and soon after natural and man-made disasters, in particular violent group conflict. In contrast, development aid is meant to promote sustainable improvements and living standards. It can also include efforts to strengthen civil society or democratic institutions. Emergency and development aid often have different operational principles. For example, while emergency aid organizations seek to remain independent of governmental authorities, development aid often involves close collaboration with governments. Moreover, some argue that democratic norms of participation are more important in development than in emergency aid. And finally, while development aid is usually long-term, emergency aid can be long or short-term. Some NGOs, governmental agencies, and multilateral organizations do both emergency and development, but distinguish between the two activities. Others do only development aid, and still others do only emergency aid. And as a result, once resources are allocated to either category, comparisons among potential projects are usually limited to that category. Potential emergency projects are only compared with potential emergency projects, and potential development projects are only compared with other potential development projects. Now, while in some situations only emergency, only emergency aid is appropriate and in others only development aid is appropriate, there are many situations in which either or both could be provided. So it's therefore more useful to think of emergency and development aid as two largely distinct kinds of activities and not as responses to two largely distinct types of situations. And that said, there are some activities that donors fund and aid organizations undertake that don't fit neatly into either category such as disaster prevention, peace building, and public health research. Now, as those of you familiar with all of this know, it's important not to overstate or caricature the distinction between emergency and development aid. There have been extensive efforts to link the two activities and to blur the boundary between them, and at a high level of abstraction, they have some of the same ends. 
At even a less abstract level, the objectives of emergency aid are preconditions for achieving the objectives of development aid. In practice, however, their shorter-term, obliga- their shorter-term objectives can diverge or even be in tension with one another. For example, the provision of emergency aid can undermine development efforts to improve agricultural production. So, in short, while it's not written in stone, the emergency development distinction remains largely intact and plays a major role in how international aid is conceptualized and distributed by governments, international organizations, NGOs, and many other types of agents. Despite their prominence, the categories of emergency and development do not track several major distributive principles that are likely to be endorsed to some degree or another by agents with a wide range of viewpoints and perspectives. These principles are prioritize the worst off, maximize aggregate utility, and fulfill special obligations. And for those of you unfamiliar with these, they they will become clear as as I continue talking. So I'm not going to defend these principles or describe their relationship to broader normative theories. I'm simply going to assume that while agents might disagree about how much weight to put, on each, to put on each of these principles, and while some people might not even accept all three, that between them, these principles are likely to elicit widespread support. And my objective here is to find principles that garner as much support as possible, because my argument will be that everyone who accepts even one of these principles will be poorly served by thinking about aid distribution in terms of emergency and development. So if you buy into any of these, the categories of emergency and development are not going to be useful for you in thinking about how aid should be distributed. The principle of priority to the worst off entails putting significant weight on the severity of potential aid recipients' needs. Now, one might think that the more weight a distributive theory places on prioritizing the worst off, the more resources it would allocate to emergency rather than development aid. After all, my definition of emergency includes severe need. And what is prioritizing the worst off if it's not prioritizing those with the most severe need? But this conclusion is too hasty. Prioritizing the worst off entails doing some emergency and some development aid. So let me explain why. First, while emergency needs are urgent and severe, if you remember my definition of emergency that we started with, many needs met by development aid, such as the need for health care, are also severe, even if they are not always urgent. Second, while emergency aid is meant to address the severe needs of specific individuals, development aid is meant to lower the risk of severe need for a larger population. But that doesn't mean that development aid avoids less severe need than emergency aid avoids, or more severe need, for that matter. Finally, different ways of conceptualizing and measuring need are likely to generate different conclusions about the degree to which the needs addressed by development aid are as severe as the needs addressed by emergency aid. So these conclusions will depend on how need is conceptualized, for example, in terms of suffering or capabilities or basic goods, as well as how severity of need is measured. For example, a virtue ethicist might view a lack of access to moral education as a more severe need than utilitarian would. A Rawlsian might emphasize needs associated with protection from sexual violence over material deprivation, while a virtue ethicist might argue that needs associated with poverty are as severe as those associated with physical security. For example, Martha Nussbaum writes, we allow that there are certain things that are so bad, so deforming of humanity, that we must go to great lengths to prevent them. Thus, we hold that torture is an insult to humanity. But to deny people material aid seems to us not in the same category at all. We do not feel that we are torturing or raping people when we deny them the things that they need in order to live. 
presumably because we do not think that these goods are of the same class. Poverty is just an external. It does not cut to the core of humanity. But she argues, of course it does. In short, um, and if you don't know about Rawlsianism and utilitarianism, this is what you have to remember. While there are many ways to conceptualize and measure need, few approaches are likely to conceptualize it in such a way that prioritizing the worst off would correspond exactly to those needs addressed entirely by emergency aid or to those needs or entirely by development aid. So I've just argued that prioritizing severe need does not in and of itself entail prioritizing either emergency or development aid. But recall that my definition of emergency included needs that were not only severe, but also urgent. While both emergency and development aid address severe needs, emergency aid is associated with needs that are both urgent and severe. And here, it might seem that I have run into a problem. It might seem that if anyone is worse off than someone with severe needs, it's someone with needs that are both urgent and severe. This suggests that prioritizing the worst off means prioritizing those with urgent and severe needs which, according to my definition, means prioritizing emergencies. But if prioritizing the worst off entails prioritizing emergencies, then my thesis that the emergency development distinction does not track salient distributive principles is in trouble. I want to suggest, however, that we should not assume that people with needs that are urgent and severe are necessarily worse off than people with needs that are merely severe. (coughs) More specifically, this is the main point, What is morally important about urgent needs is not that they make the individual or group that has them worse off, but rather that prioritizing them can help to maximize aggregate utility, which is our second principle. So to see why this is so, we need to proceed in two steps. The first step shows that prioritizing the worst off does not necessarily entail the prioritizing the person with the most urgent needs. The second second step shows that maximizing aggregate utility often often does entail prioritizing the person with the most urgent needs. So for the first step, consider Peter Unger's example of two people, each tied up next to a ticking bomb. One bomb will go off in an hour. The other will go off in a day. A rescuer can only rescue one person. Unger asks if there's any reason for the rescuer to rescue the person tied up next to the one our bomb rather than the person tied up next to the one-day bomb. The only reason to do so, he argues, is that because the person tied up next to the one-day bomb has more time, it is more likely that somebody else will go and rescue him. But if there is no chance that either person will be rescued by somebody else, then morally speaking, it makes no difference who the rescuer rescues, even though the situation of the person tied up next to the one-hour bomb is more urgent. This is so regardless of whether the rescuer wishes to maximize utility or prioritize the worst off. Now for the second step that illustrates the connection between urgency and utility. In one town, 100 people trapped by a flood have a 95% probability of dying unless they receive aid in five days. In another town, there's a 50% probability that 300 people will die from waterborne parasites over the next year unless their water supply is improved. The cost of both projects is the same. Only one aid organization exists. What should it do? If resources are unlimited, it should aid the flood victims first, followed by the people who need clean water. But what if resources are scarce and the aid organization can only do one project? Now, one might think, given the numbers and the probabilities, that I've just described, that the aid organization should fix the water supply. However, 
If there's a chance that more resources will be forthcoming soon, then the aid organization might choose to assist the flood, to assist the flood victims and hope that there are more resources will be forthcoming later to assist the town with dirty water. So the crucial point here is that the decision to prioritize the flood victims is justified not because the urgency of their situation makes them more soft, but rather because aiding them at least potentially generates more utility overall, at least if future resource flows are uncertain. As I have already begun to suggest, in addition to prioritizing the worst off, a second widely acknowledged principle that could be applied to the distribution of international aid is maximizing aggregate utility. To be plausible, any such principle for aid organizations or donors would be constrained by limits on the means that could be used to increase utility and a cap above which increases in utility would no longer be deemed morally significant. Now, just as it seemed at first that prioritizing those with the most severe need would entail emphasizing emergency aid, it might also seem that maximizing aggregate utility would entail emphasizing development aid. Thomas Paga makes an argument along these lines. He endorses a largely utilitarian distributive theory for international aid, and he implies, though he does not use these terms, that distributing resources in accordance with this theory would entail prioritizing development over emergency aid. So Paga thinks this is true. No question marks for him. Paga writes, other things being equal, an INGO should govern its decision-making about candidate projects by such rules and procedures as are expected to maximize its long-run cost-effectiveness, defined as the expected aggregate moral value of the projects it undertakes, divided by the expected aggregate cost of these projects. So this formula is not entirely utility-maximizing. Paga states, it does not instruct us simply to maximize the good, defined as harm reduction, but instead gives greater weight to protecting from harm those who are worst off. It, instruct, it instructs us to maximize some weighted aggregate that is weighted in favor of the worst off. So Paga's argument includes a principal commitment to assisting the worst off, but that can be overridden when the costs of assisting the worst off are too high. He writes, INGOs ought to discriminate in favor of badly off people who could be cheaply protected from harm and thus against badly off people whom it would and thus against badly off people whom it would be expensive to protect. So this is not merely a decision procedure for choosing between two people who are equally badly off. What he's saying is that you can pass over somebody who's worse off and help somebody who's less badly off if doing so would have big gains in terms of overall utility. Um, and he argues that if aid organizations acted on the basis of his proposal, they would end up providing aid in a small number of stable countries with good policies and large numbers of poor people, such as Ethiopia and India. In other words, he claims implicitly that maximizing harm reduction would entail channeling resources to development aid. So there are four reasons why I think we should doubt this claim. A first issue involves counterfactuals. The effects of aid provision should be calculated not by comparing aid recipient situation at T2 this later to the way things were at T1, but rather subjunctively by comparing aid recipient situation at T2 to, way things, to the way things would have been at T2 if aid hadn't been provided. So if aid's not provided in a given case, three things can happen. Things can get better on their own or for, due to some external factors. Uh, things can stay the same or things can get worse. So situations in which agents intentionally harm one another, such as violent group conflict, are all else equal likely to be in the third category. While aid might not make things much better in those situations, without aid, things are more likely to get much worse. 
simply because somebody is trying to make them worse. In such cases, the opportunity cost of not providing aid, and in this case, because it's violent conflict, it would be, it would be emergency aid, can be especially high. Now, of course, there are some situations, such um, some bad situations that no one intends, such as epidemics, that also worsen quickly, absent outside intervention. So this is a tendency, not, not an iron law. Paga writes with reference to development aid that, quote, there is so much severe poverty in so many different countries that one can find plenty of places where money can be effectively spent. A second consideration is that this might not be true. Even if emergency aid is more expensive than development aid, it could still be more cost-effective if development aid does not work. So, of course, there have been some successful development projects, but stories about so-called white elephants, expensive projects that for some simple reason fail to work are legion. So I can't resolve here the debate about whether development aid works, but it is an ongoing debate. In addition to possibly being ineffective, development aid, in particular large-scale development projects, can also have negative effects. Now, while small-scale development projects might have fewer negative effects than emergency aid and large-scale development projects, even if they have fewer potential benefits, it would be hasty to assume that development aid in general has fewer negative effects than emergency aid in general. A third point involves the issue of incentives. Paga supposes that most governments want international aid, which is why he thinks that providing aid in countries with good policies will motivate other governments to adopt those policies. However, over the past 25 years, governments such as those of North Korea, Russia, Ethiopia, Afghanistan, and Zimbabwe have sought to keep expatriate aid workers out. For these governments, the economic benefits and political legitimacy that come with international aid are overridden by other objectives such as avoiding having expatriates witness human rights abuses. This suggests that if aid organizations let it be known that they want to provide aid as cost-effectively as possible, as Paga suggests, governments might intentionally make groups they dislike more expensive to assist so as to dissuade international organizations from assisting those groups. So, for example, by putting taxes on travel or other things that would make it more expensive for aid organizations to get to groups. Um, and if they're trying to be cost-effective, they, would be, they could be manipulated in that way. So while there are countervailing considerations, this line of reason, reasoning raises the possibility that the best way for aid organizations to achieve the best consequences from a utilitarian perspective might in fact be to prioritize the worst off or at least to publicly claim to do so. So a fourth and final reason why it might be inefficient for NGOs in particular to prioritize development aid is that some donations they receive are restricted to emergencies, and they have very good utilitarian reasons to want to be able to use all the resources provided to them, um, while also pressuring donors to fund the most worthwhile objectives. Finally, and this is a different kind of point, if we adjust Paga's theory to accommodate a potential objection to it, this would also have a tremendous effect on the degree, and a tremendous uh, lessening effect on the degree to which it prioritizes development over emergency aid. Paga argues that aid organizations should not distribute aid fairly among groups if doing so would undermine cost effectiveness. However, he acknowledges that, quote, that his, quote, general rejection of distributive fairness constraints seems least plausible in cases where the fact that some people are harder to protect is a result of injustice suffered by these very people. So in a sense, it would be punishing people twice. Um, first, 
they're treated unjustly, and then they don't get help because it's more expensive to help them because they're treated unjustly. And that doesn't seem fair. So what Pokey does not acknowledge is that there's a systematic and direct correlation between being the victim of injustice, in particular being intentionally and violently persecuted, and being expensive to assist. So on the one hand, this supports Paga's claim that distributing aid on utilitarian grounds would entail prioritizing development aid in peaceful places. But on the other hand, it also suggests that if Paga's scheme, distributive scheme were modified so that costs caused, costs caused by intentional harm were excluded from calculations of cost effectiveness, dramatically more resources would go to emergency aid, and in particular for victims of violent group conflict. So I have been casting doubt on Paga's claim that distributing aid on utilitarian grounds entails prioritizing development. Now, what about the opposite claim? That emergency aid is systematically preferable to development aid on utilitarian grounds. This claim might seem promising because emergency aid sometimes appears to be more finite and doable than development aid. However, this claim also does not hold up to scrutiny. As I noted a few minutes ago, Emergency aid can be long-term or short-term. More importantly, providing aid because it seems like a finite task does not necessarily maximize the benefit that a given quantity of resources can provide. And an exception to this claim is when only incremental improvement is possible. In that case, a task must be completed for aid to have any benefit at all. Um, But for aid organizations and large-scale donors, taking on doable tasks that they can complete, that they can complete, is more a matter, I want to suggest, of of professional responsibilities and, in particular, of fulfilling special obligations to aid recipients than it is a matter of maximizing utility. So, in short, maximizing aggregate utility is likely to entail doing some development and some emergency aid. Okay. Aid organizations are not redistribution machines. They are collective agents that make and keep promises generate expectations, and take on responsibilities. They, and to some degree donors as well, can therefore have what philosophers call special obligations. And special obligations are obligations that certain agents have to certain other agents in virtue of a particular relationship or connection. And you can contrast these with general duties that are owed by all agents to all other agents. So special obligations can affect aid distribution in at least two ways. They can influence aid organizations' decisions about how to distribute resources once they're already providing aid in a particular place. In addition, the desire to avoid developing special obligations can lead aid organizations to avoid providing aid in particular situations in the first place, where they, where they think those, those obligations would develop. Um, I myself don't actually have any strong initial intuitions about whether complying with these obligations or avoiding generating them would entail prioritizing either emergency or development aid. However, I want to argue that there is, in fact, no systematic relationship between complying with special obligations and prioritizing either emergency or development aid. In other words, the choice to fulfill special special obligations is not going to shift resource distribution systematically in one direction or the other. Some aid organizations take themselves to have special obligations to current aid recipients. That's sort of the most obvious case. So, for example, as one aid organization states, quote, the decision to continue an intervention is weighed by different standards than the initial decision to intervene. Once we are working in an area and engaging a population, we develop responsibilities to those people. 
Now, most aid organizations also take themselves to have special obligations to non-recipients of aid who are negatively affected by aid distribution. For example, people who live nearby to refu- nearby refugee camps. However, compliance with special obligations does not necessarily entail prioritizing either emergency or development aid. When emergency aid is effective in bringing a situation to a state of affairs that aid organizations or donors deem normatively acceptable, the special obligations associated with it are quite limited, often more limited than those associated with development aid. However, when emergency aid is not adequate to bring a system, uh, to bring a situation up to a normatively acceptable state of affairs, it can create more extensive special obligations than development aid. Emergency aid can go on and on with no end in sight, especially when it is not designed to enable people to generate income. For example, in refugee camps where host governments will not allow refugees to work. So this, in turn, can increase aid organizations' obligations to non-recipients of aid who are negatively affected by the presence of a, of a refugee camp. So on the one hand, because poor people who receive emergency aid tend to be more directly dependent on it than poor people who receive, that's not quite the right word, development aid, terminating emergency aid can be, therefore be more ethically problematic than terminating development aid. On the other hand, especially if it involves long-term partnerships, Development aid can forge close connections among aid organizations and recipients and local partners, and that, in turn, can also generate special obligations. So, in sum, complying with special obligations does not systematically shift resources one way or the other. So, I've been arguing at some length that regardless of whether one wishes to prioritize the worst off or maximize aggregate utility or comply with special obligations or some combination thereof, Thinking about aid distribution in terms of trade-offs between emergency and development aid is misleading, no matter how much it reflects categories that are used in actual practice. So I conclude that the emergency development distinction should therefore play as little role as possible in aid distribution. Now, the rub is is that this distinction arguably is valuable for implementing aid programs. And things get especially tricky when we consider that part of what makes aid provision cost effective is how aid programs are implemented. So in the short run, although I think only in the short run, it is difficult to imagine how one might eradicate the emergency development distinction's negative effects on distribution while retaining its benefits for implementation. Therefore, in the remaining time, I shall turn from pursuing what I take to be the best conceptualization of the relationship between distributive principles and categories of emergency and development to avoiding the worst distortions that these categories impose on our thinking about aid distribution. And getting rid of these worst distortions doesn't require dismantling the categories entirely. The claim that I want to make is that the worst distortions are within the category of emergency and can be traced back to the tensions between the two definitions of emergency that I cited at the beginning of my talk. The problem is that while the concept of emergency is shot through with normativity, as the OED's definition suggests, not all features of the types of situations that we tend to call emergencies have moral force. To the contrary, the reasons why an agent might prioritize a given emergency over a non-emergency or over some or over some other emergency can be sorted into two categories those that should affect distributive decisions according to our three principles and those that should not. The features that are morally relevant are the components of emergency included in my definition of emergency, urgent and severe need. However, 
Emergencies often have features, in addition to urgent and severe need, that make them more compelling than they otherwise would be, but are not morally relevant to resource distribution on the principles that we've been talking about. The features that I have in mind are those that make the emergencies that have them seem like events. In particular, that they are rapid onset, seemingly temporary, and that they are negative divergences from normatively acceptable states of affairs. And I think the presence of these features helps to explain both why emergencies tend to be, helps to explain, does not fully explain, helps to explain why both, both why emergencies tend to be more compelling to outsiders than non-emergencies, and also why some emergencies are more compelling than others. So for reasons of time, although I can come back to this in the questions if people want, I'm going to forego explaining why these event-like features are morally irrelevant. Um, and instead, I'm going to focus on how they function. In particular, I want to suggest that they function in a way that is analogous to how cosmopolitans such as Peter Singer claim that physical proximity functions. Both proximity and event-like features tempt us to prioritize some, uh, to prioritize aiding some over aiding others. The suffering of people who are physically proximate is often easier to imagine and sympathize with than the suffering of people who are farther away. The same can be said about people who are affected by event-like emergencies as compared to people who are not. However, against the intuition that we should prioritize those who are physically proximate to us, cosmopolitans argue that proximity is irrelevant, in fact, to our obligations to assist others. Analogously, against the intuition that event-like features are morally relevant to aid distribution, I want to argue that they are, in fact, irrelevant. Finally, most cosmopolitans acknowledge that physical proximity is tangled up with other factors that might be morally relevant to the obligation to assist others, such as participation in shared political institutions and the ability to provide effective assistance. Analogously, oops, sorry. Analogously, the event-like features of emergencies are tangled up with factors that I have argued are, are morally relevant to aid distribution, such as urgent and severe need. So let me offer an example of how event-like features function in the context of international aid. Frequently, what triggers the recognition of a humanitarian emergency in a particular place is not severity, severity of need, considerations of utility, or special obligations, but rather event-like features. A rapid, seemingly temporary increase in the level of need from what had been usual in that place. For example, a leading set of technical ind indicators used by aid organizations state that in the Middle East and North Africa, a crude mortality rate, or CMR, of 0.3 deaths per 10,000 people per day constitutes an emergency. Whereas in Sub-Saharan Africa, it takes a crude mortality rate of 0.9 deaths per 10,000 people per day to constitute an emergency. And the reason for this is because the usual CMR, the usual crude mortality rate in Sub-Saharan Africa, 0.44, is almost three times higher than the usual crude mortality rate in the Middle East and North Africa of 0.16. Now, having different standards makes perfect sense if the question is which type of aid to provide. For example, if you want to provide emergency aid in an abnormal situation and development aid in a more for, for usual conditions. But when emergency aid is the only type of aid that is available or appropriate, the emergency thres threshold no longer determines what type of aid is provided in a given place. It instead determines whether any aid is provided at all. So this baseline standard that started out 
um, meaning as a way to, to demarcate what is normal from what is abnormal, starts to function as a distinction between what is normatively acceptable, what can go without aid, and what is normatively unacceptable. Because a CMR of 0.44 is usual in sub-Saharan Africa, it comes to be seen as normatively acceptable. It is the change from the normal, not the objective level of need, that's determining what is and is not an emergency. Now, recently, aid organizations working in places like Sudan and Somalia are beginning to recognize as emergencies situations with urgent and severe need that do not have event-like features. They are slow onset rather than rapid onset. They're ongoing rather than seemingly temporary. And they're persistently terrible rather than negative divergences from normatively acceptable states of affairs. Now, as long as we want to call those situations emergencies, event-like features can't be part of our definition of emergency. We must recognize that when we think of emergencies, we often think of these event-like features. And when we think of emergencies, we often think that they make moral demands on us as the OED's definition implies, but this does not mean that event-like features have moral force. So, in conclusion, I have made two arguments. First, I argued that because the categories of emergency and development do not track salient distributive principles, they undermine clear thinking about the distribution of international aid. And I've suggested that it would be best if they had no impact at all on aid distribution. Second, I argued that the worst effects of the emergency development distinction on our thinking about aid distribution come from emergencies event-like features. These features are morally irrelevant on all three distributive principles I discussed, yet in our minds they are closely associated with the concept of emergency, which is itself highly normative. Now, while the emergency development distinction is going strong at present, it is also coming under increasing pressure from various sources such as development practitioners who want to work in contexts that were previously at the preserve of emergency aid, donors who want to leverage aid for security purposes, chronic emergencies in places such as South Sudan and Somalia, and diseases such as TB and HIV AIDS. Now, regardless of what happens to the emergency development distinction in the, fu- distinction in the future, one general implication of my argument, totally separable from the empirical fact of emergency and development aid, is that just because a given set of categories is useful for implementing efforts to improve human welfare, this does not mean that it is conducive to a principled distribution of resources among those efforts. A second general implication of my argument concerns how we approach emergencies, both within and outside of the context of international aid. Much of the literature on emergency powers, and this is in political theory, much of the literature on emergency powers, supreme emergency, and even good Samaritanism emphasizes the uniqueness and the exceptionalness of emergencies. It suggests that to be morally sensitive is to recognize and respond to that distinctiveness, for example, by suspending laws or overriding moral rules. And the opposite treatment of the emergency development divide or the emergency normal divide, ignoring it, which is ignoring it, can be found in Paga's argument about how aid organizations should distribute their resources, and though I didn't discuss it here, in Peter Singer's seminal article, Famine, Affluence, and Morality. What I want to suggest is that when it comes to distributing resources, neither of these stances towards emergencies is appropriate. On the one hand, in order for outsiders to respond effectively to emergencies, such as famines or conflicts or floods or terrorist attacks, they must recognize and respond to what is distinctive about those situations. But for the purpose of distributing scarce and fungible resources, 
and is also necessary to see beyond this distinctiveness in order to make principled comparisons of potential courses of action across the emergency-non-emergency divide. Money, attention, political capital, emotional investment, these are all distributed among emergencies and between emergencies and non-emergencies. Overstating the differences between emergencies and non-emergencies can distract us, not from the empirical similarities between emergencies and non-emergencies, but rather from the connections among them, connections that are created and maintained by the distribution of resources. These connections entail the need to make comparisons and trade-offs on the basis of defensible principles and criteria. And in the case of international aid in particular, downplaying the distinctiveness of emergencies is the most morally sensitive route in a world where horrendous suffering is completely normal. Thank you. Okay. Um, go ahead. Excuse me, I had a question about the DAC graph. Okay. Um, from back in the game. Should I? Um, okay. It's been a while since I've been through, through this debate, but correct me from. Can I stand up here? Yeah, okay. Correct me if I'm wrong, OTA only measures uh, official flows. Yes. Okay, my understanding is that you were talking a great deal about non governmentals. Yes. So I was curious if you have a sense of uh, how much, what those figures would be like outside of DAC. Because DAC doesn't, I mean, that's. Why the public ODA decline, right? Because we're always going around that. Um, it's true of UN agencies that do both. And all the evidence, which is very paltry, suggests that it's also true of NGOs. There's very little good evidence on this question on NGOs. The best is uh, a report called Global Humanitarian Assistance that's online that you can look at if you want to. But that graph was meant to be illustrative of a trend and also of the categories that I was going to be talking about, um, not the whole field. So you're right about that. Um, I do think it's true of the whole field, um, but you're right that the, that the graph didn't, didn't show that. Uh, I, oh, okay. I, I don't mean to come to this point, but I, um, are, are you sure that the NGOs are sort of giving in terms of flows that are parallel to that graph? Because my sense is that a lot of the best non-governmentals out there are I have a sense that, that, that a lot of NGO flows go to development. I mean, I, I, I guess I would just say, in my sense is that maybe a little bit more empirical data to support that there's actually some like strong tilt in the past, I don't know what, maybe decades is your window, towards emergency assistance. I mean, the, a couple of the NGOs that were mentioned at the beginning that you would interview with, like Oxfam and stuff like that, I mean, like Oxfam shot through and through with real development. I mean, they're very much, they're not the sort of doctors out of borders, let's parachute in with TV cameras and CNN. I mean, my sense is that most of the major NGOs, especially the ones that get a lot of official sort of, sort of development assistance, or um, excuse me, state funding, particularly in Britain and stuff like that, they're they're getting dollars for development. I, I, I would be surprised if the flows were as heavily tilted towards emergency funding as maybe you were suggesting. Um, well, we can uh, we can talk about it later if you want. What I want to point out is that it's actually morally irrelevant the ratio between development aid and emergency aid. Not just for the reasons that I was talking about, but because what we really care about is whatever normative theory we have. Let's say how what we really think is that aid should be distributed, let's say only based on need. If that's what we think, then what matters is not the emergency development trade-off, but the ratio of emergency needs to emergency aid and development needs to development aid. See what I'm saying? So, um, let's see, I guess Alex is next. Um, I guess that the, uh, the question of intentionality kept coming 
up in my mind and whether you were saying that, um, what was the phrase you just used? I mean, these normative theories, are you saying that they, they're driving aid decisions? Or are you just saying that the aid decisions end up having implications for these normative theories that, that are fun to think about? Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, are they sitting around saying, well, we've got utilitarian things to think about, but we also have uh, special obligations and, you know, what is the role of intentionality? For the most part, they are not. I mean, it, it really depends on the aid organization you're talking about. Some are much more thoughtful than others. For the most part, they're not thinking in terms of the distributive theories I was describing, and they are thinking more in terms of emergency development. And my point was that that clouds our thinking when what we really want to be thinking about are these principles or, or something like them. Sorry, I just wanted to follow. So, I mean, partly building on, on Bob's question, I mean, you have, you're talking mostly about NGOs, then of course you have governments It seems like one thing they also would think about is, well, what are the governments doing and what are the multilaterals doing? And we would want to adjust what we're doing to complement what they're doing, that that might be a major variable that they're considering, which is sort of exogenous. Right. I mean, you can... These principles could still hold just as well if what you were talking about was... Except for special obligations, which are about specific agents. The other two principles could hold regardless of whether you're talking about an individual organization or what you really care about, which is the net effect of the entire, of the entire sector. Um, Alex? Uh, two questions. First, just briefly, um, you alluded to what the alternative might be. Maybe on your short run, but in the meeting tomorrow, I guess I'd like to hear more about what the alternative would be from a organizational standpoint. But the other question, more substantive question, is I guess I wondered whether it's possible to subject aid distribution, especially in emergencies, to um, the kinds of normative arguments that you're raising from a political theory standpoint. It seems to me that it's an effort to normalize emergency situations. So we have general principles, but we can do somehow what should be done in those situations. And if you think about um, emergency in ways that you actually suggest as kind of an exceptional situation from a Schmidtian standpoint, um, those kinds of situations may demand precisely going beyond the norm. It may be impossible to implement norms there. It requires some kind of decision. Um, and so then it's sort of unrealistic to expect uh, the distribution of aid to somehow conform to some logic that from a political theory standpoint might make sense. Um, maybe we just have to be able to respond to the contingency of the situation and hope for the best. Um, okay, I'll take them in reverse order. I think we have to distinguish between individual emergencies and trends in emergencies over time. Um, and the trends, um, like there are sort of databases of emergencies, and you can see that while individual emergencies might be surprising, the trend of emergencies is not. And especially when you have agents that are dedicated entirely to dealing with emergencies, I think it's perfectly fair to ask them to be thoughtful about, about, how, they, about how they do that. Um, I think that's probably less true for the guy who wakes up one morning and sees his neighbor's home destroyed by an earthquake. So I think that once you have professional organizations doing this, I, I think it is fair to demand that. In terms of the alternative, there's how, there's how we sort of conceptualize the alternative and there's what we think would happen. The closest I've come to conceptualizing an alternative, and this is imperfect and problematic, is something like um, need-blind college admissions. 
in need-blind college admissions, you have a first decision that's based on one set of criteria about who should get into the college, and then you have a second decision based on a different set of criteria about how, about, about how much money they should get. And so one possibility is something like sort of the, a two-layered decision. But for the reasons that I mentioned, all the people with all the information that could help you to make those initial distributive decisions are entrenched in these, in these practices. And you want them to be entrenched in those practices. So, so I'm still having trouble sort of conceptualizing what it would look like. In terms of what's actually going to happen, I do think that over the next 30 years, um, it, between new funding mechanisms, between chronic emergencies, between HIV AIDS, that these categories are going to fall a little bit by the wayside. I think the concept of emergency, possibly even for evolutionary reasons, is, is, a, is a pretty coherent concept that's going to stick around over time. But I do, I, my prediction would be that um, the, the, the particular distinction I've been talking about is going to subside. But that doesn't change the fact that, that we need to think about whatever concepts we end up with, that those might not be the best concepts. For the concepts we, that we end up with in terms of implementation might not be the best concepts for distribution. <laughs> um, maybe this is unfair, but two of the themes that went through my head as you spoke um, have to do not with NGOs but with states, and also uh, not perhaps with documentable input impact studies, like how many bucks, how many shovels, whatever, but psychological and political impact. And I was thinking particularly about Katrina and Afghanistan. And in both those cases, you've got states that are barely holding up their end of the stick. And the state of emergency becomes either a pretext for rallying to a state, which is very weak uh, in certain ways, or a test of the state's capacity to deliver a reasonable level of security. Um, so I immediately segue to the state side of this, which I realize is beyond the scope of your paper. But your paper may be a lot of thinking about how the state impinges on the distribution system that NGOs would like to have them travel to a place of number is, and we said that at the beginning. And I also found myself totally bypassing the ethical issue that was sort of going for the expediency and political leverage kind of issues that are here. I'm not sure how they impinge on your model. It's very interesting to hear somebody arguing political theory to the point of view of ethics. And I don't know how, weird, how rare this is, but it was very intriguing to me. <laughs> we might be suddenly making this into some ethical basis. I, I miss the, the ethical content of the neocon philosophy. It did not register with me and still does. So um, I'm wondering um, how the state and its in, its presence, weak or strong, or would want to be um, impacts on your sense of logistics of this. So that's not a whole other paper probably is, which I apologize. Um. On your, on your first question, I mean, one thing to think about, and this goes beyond the issue of distribution, is the claim that a situation is an emergency has all sorts of effects. It's in some people's interests. It's not in other people's interests. Um, it can um, help make a state stronger. In some cases, it can be um, you know, a, 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 force against, a, a force against the state. So I think that you're right to think that, that there's something there. And some of the debates about emergency powers actually address that. Um, states where aid is being provided totally get in the way sometimes, intentionally or not, um, and then sometimes are, are quite helpful. Um, 
and I, I guess what I would say in terms of the model is that, you know, you would sort of take that into account, um, you know, when, when sort of, for, for example, with regard to cost effectiveness. The problem is manipulation, right? If you're um, public about that you're going to be cost effective, you're just opening up yourself up to a world of manipulation. So what co starts to come into conflict there are norms of publicity, being open about your motivations and what you're doing and being cost effective. But that's, that's another paper too. Um, and uh, in terms of expediency, I want to resist this harsh dichotomy. I'm resisting harsh dichotomies today, but I want to resist a harsh dichotomy between sort of expediency and real politic on the one hand and the world of normative, what we should do on the other hand. Um, I think um, we both want to be clear about what we should do, even if it's sort of unlikely to happen. Um, and I think that, that the two realms can sort of infiltrate each other in, in subtle ways, even if we sort of don't get everything, everything that we want in a particular case. Um, well, one thing is that the best long-term investment might be to educate donors about what their preferences should really be. Did you want to jump in on that? Well, let me just say one thing, which is that um, in all of these, for all of these principles, even if the need to maintain the steady income stream could make it more difficult, that could still be, these princi normative principles could still be what you ideally wanted to do, um, even if the need to please donors made it more difficult. But I do also think that, and you see this much more in, in England than you do here, the, a sort of a, a public discussion about aid and what it should be, what it should be for and things like that. So, so I do think that that it's not totally pie in the sky to think in terms of, of educating donors. Yeah, I guess I was just going to follow up on that. I mean, if anything, ODA flows per capita from the north and decline. So his question actually has become, you know, how can this even worse than it would have been 25 years ago, right, which political sellability for NGOs is extraordinarily important. It is. I, 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 I don't disagree with you, but, I mean, the distributive question is pretty far down the pole. And it's only getting worse because donors increasingly, and this is what the question I was asking next, actually increasingly responding to development aid with moral hazard rather than from economics rather than political theory. And that's what I was going to get to next because an economist would say to you, the political theorist, well, look, development aid is moral hazard, right? So you get the NGOization of entire sectors. And there was a great piece, I can't remember who wrote it, about the, the NGOization, that's what he called it, of the education sector in Angola, where, where the MPLA basically said, you know, we're just not even going to do this anymore. We're just, you know, money's fun, we're going to take the money, we're going to chase the around the bush. So you guys just educate our people and you're going to give them shots and teach them how to read Right? I mean, there's a really, really strong moral hazard argument from economics against your political theory argument saying it should be emergency only because everything else is, you know, bailing out bad behavior by governments. 
I think I, this is the problem of substitutability and of substituting for states and of allowing them to not fulfill their responsibilities to their citizens because NGOs are doing it. Um, I think NGOs are, are increasingly aware of that problem and resist substituting as much as they can. When there is no functioning state and there's no potential for one, that becomes less, you know, that becomes less of a less of a problem. I think. Uh, I, 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 we had the Afghan ambassador here six months ago, and he said exactly this. And I asked him exactly this question. He said, don't give money to the NGOs, give it to us. Because the NGOs are sapping our ability to actually function. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I just would disagree that the NGOs see it. For the NGOs, these are targets of opportunity. They have non-functioning states, NGOs come in and do this. It keeps them alive, it keeps them running, it keeps the dollars coming in. I, I, I don't, there's a strong self-interest for non-governmentals to continue to substitute for the state, but the state doesn't work, rather than to step back and allow the state to grow. Sure. Especially it's places that they, they don't really trust the state. I mean, the Afghan state, they're ready to execute somebody who's going to convert from Islam, and then you want to let them to, you want to allow them to control the education. So, I mean, there are strong imperatives for secular Western non-governmentals to prevent state growth in places like Angola or Afghanistan where you wouldn't trust it. The question of what NGOs and these other agents ideally ought to do is, I think, worth answering, even at the same time as we acknowledge that, in fact, they have a lot of incentives towards self-perpetuation, towards doing things that are non that are non-ideal. None of none of the things that you're saying, while they're important, I think reduce the importance of trying to figure out what they should be doing. Were they because you know, a lot of the people that work for NGOs are pretty good-intentioned people, um, and so especially because there is a possibility that if they do have the room to do what they should do, they want to do it. It's there's a practical reason to be to get clear about it. An urgent need is a need that must be met in a short period of time in order to be met at all. That makes it an event-like or non-event-like feature? Um, event, because I think urgency is morally important, and I think event-like features are not morally important, they're different. Yeah, I know why they should be different, but I understand why they are different. Oh, okay. Um, the fact, I think... The, the closest analog to, to urgency is temporariness. And I said that temporariness, that the, the fact that a situation seems temp, well, I guess that's not right. So your question is, is why is, why does urgency not make a situation seem more like an event? Um, well, let me try and put it directly. You, you distinguish W's question. And, and, I, and I took part of it to be 
well, why are why, why do we think we should have general principles to handle emergencies? And you said something like, well, because the organizations involved have to take a long-term view of the regularity or the frequency of emergencies. And I, I just didn't see how that answered Alex's question. Okay. Um, your first point is, is helpful. I, I appreciate that. Because there's two, there's two distinctions here. One is between what's morally relevant and what's morally irrelevant. And there's also a distinction between what we find compelling and what we don't find compelling. Okay, I'll, I'll let you go with that for a while. I'm not, I'm not sure what to make of it. But. Okay. Um, so what you're saying is while urgency might be morally relevant, it also makes us makes us want to prioritize it. It's, it's compelling. You, you, it, but what I want to say is that's okay. Um, and I, what I, think, I think this was a, a problem in my talk, but, what, but that's okay. The problem is things that we find morally compelling but that aren't morally relevant. So should I, should I go to the other question about yeah, distribution? I, we can go back to that. Yeah, sure. I find these morally compelling. That's right. Right. Um, So it sounds to me like what you're suggesting is that what aid organizations should do is to sort of not make any plans at all, but when an emergency happens, jump on a plane. Like, I'm just not sure what the alternative, for organizations that are devoted to, um, or I'll just both these, for organizations that are devoted to aiding people, and, that, and some of the, either some or all of the work that they're going to do is to emergencies, it, it strikes me that, I'm not sure what the alternative is to trying to figure out how they should do that, and that if they, and once they decide to figure out how they should do that, to try to figure out the best way, the most principled way. I guess from my standpoint, part of what I was getting at is that every emergency is going to be different, precisely because it's an emergency. But let me let me just stop you right there. They're not that different. They're actually often like people who sort of study the science of these things. They're often quite similar, only in terms of what you should do to respond to them. So, so organizations like MSF have entire pre-made packs um, that are all ready to go and that they can, I mean, I don't know if this gets to your point, and that they can sort of ship out um, and that there are standards and procedures and, and ways of, of responding. So even though they, they, they're surprising to us, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not as, as surprising. Does that? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Except that every summer I volunteer for them. And it's a small NGO. And uh, um, and the thing that I it does it does uh, medical and dental work down in, in Honduras. And the thing that's striking to me about it is that it's essentially was put together by one guy who you know with a big and there are big there are big NGOs like the International Red Cross and Oxford. I'm wondering about how many of these little NGOs there are, pocket-sized that are driven essentially by the egos or the, you know, the self-actualization needs or whatever of, this, of, of an individual or a small group of individuals. In terms of aggregate utility, what might be done? I mean, is there, is this a significant clutch of, of, of groups in the, of, of overall that, that 
make sense to try to educate them into joining in the larger organizations, or does it make, make sense to have them be freestanding? Emergency aid is very much concentrated. The, the, the dollars are very much concentrated in a few very large organizations. Um, there are very many large numbers of organizations of the kind you described that are small. If I had to decide how to spend my time, I wouldn't go trying to persuade somebody who has dedicated his life to, to having an aid organization do dental work in Honduras that he really should be in Congo. You know, I just think that's too demanding, um, morally speaking, um, and just kind of, you know, jerky. But um, I, but I think we can have other expectations for these large professional organizations that are both controlling a large number of resources, you know, and you know want want to sort of want to think about things these things and have you know say on their websites that we assist the most vulnerable. You know, they have a lot of mosts in their websites. Um, so so so. Um, so yeah, I do think I do think there's quite a big difference there. I'm um, say that what I'm describing is morally irrelevant. Are in fact relevant. Well, whether they're completely morally relevant. Okay. Okay. Right? Um, so, and the intuition runs something like this: that um, you know, the homeless person approaches me. Classic, right? Homeless person approaches me on the street for money, and despite all the posters that, that say "real change, not spare change," a lot of people think that there is something about helping this person indirect need in front of you. And it's not a matter of you being able to uh, uniquely situate it, right? Because you could you could help plenty of people if you did take that five bucks or, or whatever um, and, and took it to uh, a shelter or, or some sort of organization. It has to do with something about the, the encounter, right? It's kind of a phenomenological thing. Um, and it's possible that that just doesn't exist when you're talking about large organizations um, distant. But I wonder if there's not something um, analogous to them that makes emergencies precisely as emergencies, as emergent <coughs> versus just urgent, morally relevant, uh, morally relevant category, um, uh, you know, that, where we incur, uh, it goes beyond the duty of benefit, a general duty of beneficence, right? Um, and similarly, um, the notion that something is a negative divergence from the normally acceptable state of affairs. Again, I agree that there's something strange about just being content with normatively un unacceptable state of affairs. But if we think of, there are lots of situations in the law um, uh, and other sort of moral situations where we feel that there's something right about restoring things to the status quo ante, right? So when, you know, forget the biblical sort of thing, but, you know, God takes away everything Job has, sub subjects him to all kinds of. Um, trials and when he's restored, he isn't restored to the level of the average peasant, um, right? He's given back, uh, re restored to his full, sort of his full station, right? And, and so, and I think that that points to an intuition we have that there's something morally relevant beyond utility um, associated with restoring people to their, their previous position. And if that's the case, 
the negative divergence from norms and normatively acceptable state of affairs does carry some, uh, it is normatively relevant and morally relevant. And I, I'm willing to admit that when you're talking about um, a maximum or even uh, aggregate utility or special duties, that, that these things seem more important. But I wonder if, the, if these things are completely normally relevant. And the third one that occurs to me is that we might have special moral obligations. This is maybe a corollary to the first thing that I said. That we might have special obligations that are precisely related to something being emergent, or for that matter, something being developmental. So these are role specific. We've identified our role as trying to address this kind of problem, right? I'm the sort of person who does X, or I've taken it on as a project to do X, right? I mean, it seems to me to be perfectly consistent for an aid organization. You know, if not people who work, some people criticize people who work for the SPCA saying, how could you possibly work for the welfare of animals when there's so much human suffering out there, right? And the response is, well, no. I mean, we can, we can sort of package what we think is important as long as we're doing uh, something morally worthwhile. And we have, kind of, you know, we can have role-specific obligations and commissions that emerge out of that. It seems to me that we also could for aid organizations in this Thanks. Those are helpful. I'll take them in reverse order. Um, I... First of all, there's a difference between the individual working for these organizations and the organizations themselves. And I'm talking about the organizations themselves. As I was saying in this case, I don't think that these principles, they're too demanding, I think, for, for individuals. Um, inter okay. But, but as you're answering, spell out when, when, those, when that difference is relevant. So I could see an organization having something very strongly analogous to an individual's specific to a, to specific permissions and obligations and other things like that. Right? I think that, so what we're talking about is role morality, right? Do, That's for the third one. Right, right, right. So I'm taking them in reverse order. So, um, so um, I think that because the needs we're talking about are so great and severe that any role you would want to be justified, have, have a secondary kind of consequentialist justification. It's not okay to just say, oh, it's my role, so we're doing it. Like, the role itself has to be justified. Um, I, and there's a threshold effect associated with that, where, where when you're dealing with things this big and important. Right, 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 right. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm skeptical of role-based obligations in the first place if they're not consequential, justified on a consequential basis. Whether the, the, maxim, the, the maximalization question, whether... Um, only roles that, that maximally um, promote, promote utility or maximally, I, I agree that there's, that there's some question there. But most of the organizations we're talking about are pretty close anyway, the big ones. Um, there's something right about restoring things to the status quo ante. I would want to hear more. I mean, the, the closest that thing that I can think of that you might be having in your mind is something like stability. Like stability is a good in and of itself. I think that ceases to be true at lower levels of well-being. The goods that we get from, from having things stay the same, stability, being able to predict what happens the next day to plan, if things are stable at a very low level, that ceases to be, that ceases to be a benefit of stability. So I think that when you're talking about the, that, so that benefit of returning things to the status quo, I think um, is absent in this case. I would, I would have to, I'm not sure what, it, it, I, I, don't, I don't think there is a something right um, about returning things to the status quo, but, but we, if you think there is, we can, we can talk well, about it. it. I think it's just, oh, sorry. Oh. I didn't realize what it was before. I really wanted to oh, sorry. the way I want to 
thank you, Jennifer, for coming. I want to thank all of you for staying. And uh, I want to remind those of you that are left that on Friday, uh, Danielle Allen of the Dean of Humanities uh, at Chicago will be here speaking on, on gladiators. And then a week from Friday, Peter Shane from the law school and Alexander Domrin from the Duma in Moscow will be talking about executive emergency powers and how states respond to emergencies, both Putin's case and Bush's claim that the United States faces emergency power. And in between on Monday, Ben Valentino will be here talking about genocide. So we sort of got a package here. We don't always get an opportunity to do it for Sean. We're having four sort of interrelated talks. So I hope you can Thank you all. Thank you again, Jeff. Thank you.